come to the conclusion of Acts chapter 26, and we have two chapters left. I will uh, want to tell you, again, if you are not used to this, uh, we have a, I put a handout on the back side of the bulletin if you picked one up this morning. Uh, that way, you, if you, it helps you follow along, you can do that. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but usually at the bottom there, I put where we're going to go next or where, uh, what the next section of text is. That way, uh, I encourage you to be reading it uh, during the week. You're ready for Sunday morning. Uh, you'll notice there that we're going to be on a little bit of a break, however, before we pick Acts up again. We have some stuff coming. It seems like July is always like this. Uh, we have some uh, different things coming. Next week, we're going to have our service uh, in the park, not here. So we're going to gather here for Sunday school. We'll come in here briefly for kind of like our opening uh, kind of uh, announcement offering kind of thing. And we dismiss, and we're going to head up to uh, Depot Park in White Pigeon. So uh, make sure you, you come ne- next week, bring some chairs with you. Unless you want to sit on the ground, you can bring a blanket. Uh, we're going to take up the park there, have an outdoor service. Uh, this is part of White Pigeon Days. Although it's typically our church and maybe one other church in town that I uh, think uh, that does this, that so we kind of join together. But I think it's an important thing to be a visible part of the community. And so we're going to have church there. Then you know we got uh, some other Sundays coming up in July, some different things going on. So I just decided to put off until we come back more regularly to Acts. Uh, so we're going to not return until uh, August sometime. So it'll be a little bit until we pick this up again. But we will finish off uh, chapter 26 today. We are in the middle of Paul making his defense for like the second or third time in front of the rulers. Uh, Remember, uh, just to make sure you're engaged or make sure you're... uh, uh, I I know you know this, but to make sure you're engaged, I guess. Um, I mean, every time Paul has stood before the authorities and has uh, given his defense, the outcome is almost always the same. So the question of Paul's guilt or innocence is always what? Is he guilty or innocent? He's innocent, right? There's nothing that, that, there's no reason why he's on trial. Uh, At least, there's no reason that he should be imprisoned or put to death. That's what always keeps coming back. And yet, is he released or not? He's never released. He's always held for some reason. Uh, As a favor to someone, or they're not sure what to do with him. Or now in this place where he has made an appeal uh, to go to Caesar because uh, uh, Festus was uh, threatening to send him back to Jerusalem. And after two years, you remember that there were still these Jewish people who were still committed that the moment they get a chance, the moment they get a slight crack in the door, they're going to kill Paul. And so Paul says, I want to go to Rome instead, which, again, he has a sense of where the Holy Spirit is taking him because Jesus has come to him and said, Paul, don't be afraid. Even though they want to take your life, even though there's pressure against you, don't be afraid, for you know, I'm telling you, you know that uh, I want you to speak of me in Rome just as you have done here in Jerusalem and in all the places you speak. But he's in the middle of this defense. He keeps going on, He's, as Paul always does, right? This well-reasoned out, this well-thought-out, this, well, this convincing argument. Of course, may I remind you, it's convincing because truth is on his side, right? It's convincing. It's hard to argue with because he's telling the truth. And we're going to pick up in verse 24, for in the middle of his defense, he gets interrupted. Verse 24, chapter 26 of Acts, to the end of the uh, chapter. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Festus being the guy that actually has control over him, but he's in the presence of King Agrippa and his sister Bernice. Festus says with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. This has not been hidden from anybody. Chapter, I'm sorry, verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? 
I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become as such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Lord God, we want to come to you faithfully every week and studying your word, knowing that you are faithful in helping it speak to us. I say it no differently this morning. Would you take your word? Would you break it open to us? May the truth that's contained in it not only show us, reveal to us what's happening in those days with Paul, but that they may have some import to us today. I don't want to back away from asking God that the words that are written on these pages that we're studying have impact in our lives, in my life and in our lives. You, of course, know God by your sovereignty and your complete wisdom, what the best way is for that to happen, and I'll allow you, I want to have you do that through your Holy Spirit. Thank you for doing this and faithfulness to us in Jesus' name, amen. I want to show you this morning in our text that we really have uh, two different people who both reject, both are offered or both come to know the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they both reject it. Now, they do it in different manners. They do it in different mechanisms, but they both reject the gospel. And I want to also, I'm going to hopefully remind you this at the end, but I want to also remind you that as much as for us, we here who are believers and we're sitting in church today and we're kind of making away piecemeal, like painstakingly digging through this story, and probably for us who over and over and over again are just left with this feeling of, why is it like this? They say he's innocent. They say he did nothing wrong. Why don't they just take care of it and vindicate him and release him so he can go do what he's supposed to do? It feels unfair to us. I want to remind you that that injustice that we're feeling inside of us, while correct, there's a greater injustice that's happening, and that is every time these last couple of scenes where the gospel is being shared, notice what's happening. It's being rejected. It's being said no to. It's putting off. I would submit to you that we ought to have the mindset that says, as much as it grates against us, as much as it frustrates us to have the truth made obvious, and Paul still doesn't get set free, it is a far greater deal, a far greater injustice when the truth of God and the gospel is shared and people say no thank you. There's much more loss there. We would say that Paul is losing. Paul, by the way, would not say that. But we would say that Paul is losing by being kept under guard. But we should understand there's a far greater loss happening when people hear the gospel and say no to it. Let's jump in. We're going to pull three quotes out of the text today to to be our three main points. The first one is going to come right with Festus' interruption. He says, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning, you have studied so much, you think you know so much, and it's driving you out of your mind. You're insane. You've lost it, Paul. Now, I want to go back to the verse that was just before that because I want to make sure we carefully inspect why Festus would have this reaction at this moment. Paul has been speaking for a while already, right? He's giving his defense. He's going through and he's laying his arguments forward. He's saying, listen, I've been like this from the beginning. I'm not, I'm not walking away from Judaism. I'm not doing anything against Caesar. All these things. But he gets to verse 23 and Festus must interrupt at that moment. Verse 23 says this. He ends, the last thing he said before being interrupted, he says that the Christ would suffer. That's what the prophets talked about. That the Christ 
Christ would suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. I would tell you this morning, I think there's at least two things in there that made Festus immediately say, wait a minute, let's call a halt to this. Paul, you're out of your mind. I can't hang, hold on to this anymore. I can't, I can't listen to this anymore. The first is that he begins to talk about people coming back from the dead. We've talked about that in other Sundays already. That's the over and over again. It's what Paul is talking about. He says, this is why I'm on trial, because we're talking about a resurrection. Not just in general, but we're talking about a specific resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice this morning, there's a second thing that's tucked in there. Because when Paul says, when Jesus came back from the dead, that he is now going to be the light that's proclaimed to both our people and to the Gentiles, the discerning mind, which I believe Festus had, the discerning mind immediately realizes that he can no longer say, this is just an issue that you folks have to deal with. You guys have to deal with it. It's a Jewish thing. You guys fight it out. But when Paul says now Jesus came back from the dead and is proclaiming light to the Jews and to the Gentiles, guess who's the Gentile? Festus is. Suddenly this puts something in his lap that says, you need to deal with it too. You have got to reconcile what Paul is saying too. It's not just some crazy argument he's having with those crazy people in Jerusalem. It now matters to you. Now, you should not, this should not be a surprise to you, but I would say the same thing to you, by the way. Now, you're sitting here in church, so you already know this, I hope. But this, the, the, the story of, of Scripture, the story of Jesus matters to every single person who's alive, for they were all created by God, and they were all going to be redeemed through Jesus. That's the only option they have. Which means for every one of us, we're in the same place. You have to do something with it. You can't just say that's an issue that you guys have to figure out. We'll let the religious people figure out what to do with Jesus. It doesn't work anymore, does it? And Festus realizes this. And he says, okay, I can't agree to that. So if you can't agree with, if you can't receive the message that's coming, one option is to refute it the way he does, by saying the messenger is crazy. The messenger is insane. He's out of his mind. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's become foolish in all this study stuff he's doing. You see how this works? It's called a defense mechanism. We have them all the time. If you hear what someone's saying and it begins to make sense and you begin to realize that it has importance to you and you're going to have to deal with it and you don't want to, then you immediately start discounting the messenger. Look at our broader culture around us. It's happening all the time. And let's not be too quick to point fingers because we do the same thing. I mean, would I have to suggest that there's times when we have people in church who maybe are man, those guys are really spiritual. They're, they're really kind of radical. They're like more than I want. And they begin to share things. They begin to show things out of the scripture that really seem true. And what's the first thing we do sometimes when we don't want to receive that? We don't want to allow that into our heart. We don't want to say, we know we should say yes to it, but we don't want to. We begin to discount them, the person that's saying it. Well, you know them. Yeah, they think a little weird about some other things too. We can act like it's not us. We can think it may be just other people around us, but we do the same thing, don't we? This, by the way, is not just a, you know, I brought it right into here, but this is the hallmark, and Scripture would tell us, this is the hallmark of Jesus and the story of Jesus and the gospel and, and what happens when the gospel is shared. Paul is not the first one that when he begins to uh, live boldly for God, that he begins to be, uh, be accused of being insane or out of his mind. In fact, if you want to go back, way back in the Old Testament, there's a story where this man named Jehu meets with a man of God, and when he comes back out, this is in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 11, says, when Jehu came back out to the servants of his master, look what they said to him. It says, is all well? They asked him, 
why did this mad fellow, why did this man who's out of his mind come to you? And look at Jehu's response. He says, ah, you know this fellow and how he talks. You get that same sense, right? By the way, who is this guy? Who's the guy they're talking about? Who's the guy that came and talked to Jehu? Anybody know? You know your Old Testament history? He gave him a message and said, Jehu, you're going to become king. Who is it? Anybody know who the mad, the mad fellow was? Who the, the guy was? That, you know how that guy talks. It's Elisha. Elisha. Now go read the rest of Elisha and see, tell me whether he's, whether he's insane or not, whether he's out of his mind or not. Those things happen, don't they? When John the Baptist came, what, did, what happened? They claimed he was full of, of, of a devil. When Jesus came, what happened to him? I'll tell you one thing that happened to him. As Jesus chose his disciples and began to gain popularity, and it says in Mark chapter 3 that people, when they found out where Jesus was at, they came and crowded in so much that he couldn't even eat anymore. And look what happens in verse 21 of chapter 3. It says, when his family, when Jesus' family heard about it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying what? The exact same word that Festus uses for Paul. They said, Jesus is out of his mind. Who was that that said about him? It's his family. And of course, if you would just read it in chapter 3 of Mark, the very next verse, the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders come to him, and they say, you have a demon in you, Jesus. You cast demons out by the power of Beelzebub. Paul is not unique in this. I've done this lots of times. I've overlaid the stories of other characters in Scripture, and I do that for a reason. Maybe I've never made it clear enough, and so I'm going to just make it clear this morning. Paul is not unique in this. It's happened many times in Scripture. We want to know that because we should not feel unique in that if it happens to us. If it should happen to us that we are reviled or that people say crazy things about us or we begin to bring a message that they don't want to receive and so they attack the messenger and say, you're out of your mind, you're crazy. That we might think to ourselves, you know, it happened to Elisha, it happened to John the Baptist, it happened to Paul, it happened to Jesus himself. Let's not let myself be so self-pitiful and think that I'm the only poor Sap was ever gotten called names for Jesus. You know, Paul picks up on this theme when he writes to this letter to the Corinthians. I'm actually going to read some more. If you want to flip in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he picks up on this theme. You know, he's lived this stuff. He knows what it's like to bring Jesus into, into the place, people who don't want to hear it and how they respond to it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm going to start reading in verse 18. He says this, Paul writes this to him, he says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And he goes on and asks some questions. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made the foolish I'm sorry, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. By the way, same word, folly. Folly to the Gentiles. That's what Festus is picking up. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
I'm afraid that much, I'll just make this statement here, I'm afraid that much of what evangelical Christianity in the West has traded away, has given up, has let go of, has been in the name of not trying to be foolish in the eyes of the world. And I'm also afraid, I'm not afraid, I'm just going to tell you the truth, I'm afraid for the truth that it contained here, is that that is what this is talking about, is that we have decided that I would rather not look like a fool than be faithful to Scripture or faithful to Jesus. And Paul makes it clear in these words, doesn't he? And unless, or perhaps we might think this is a Jew-Gentile kind of thing, like it's, a, it's an ethnic kind of thing. Jews and Gentiles, Jews demand, uh, demand signs, and Greeks, they, they, want, they want wisdom. So they, they, maybe it's that kind of thing. But Paul says just a few verses later in chapter 2, he says this. He's talking about how they bring the gospel to people. And he says this. He says, we impart this. We impart the gospel in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truth to those who are spiritual. And the next verse is this. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand understand them because they were spiritually discerned. It's not an ethnic thing. It's a human thing. The natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. Now, I, I want to I take a, little, I, I take a little, little stop there just a minute because I, my senses, my senses this verse has been abused sometimes and maybe there's those of us who might be a little hesitant with this verse because my sense is sometimes we've used this kind of verse to explain away that when I want to do some crazy kooky thing and you think I shouldn't and then I want to say, well, it's a spiritual thing. You don't understand that. And I'm not really joking because I think it's happened and does happen. But at the same time, we make an equally big mistake if we don't understand the truth of this word. The natural man cannot receive the things that come from God. Have you ever been in a situation where you feel like you're very adequately explaining something out of Scripture and someone just doesn't get it? I'm guessing you probably have been. And I don't want to paint with a broad brush and say it's always the case, but it's quite likely that you were faced with a situation where it wasn't going to be received. Look at what I just read. I just read a long section from Paul and then these two verses. The things that God and the way he does them are folly to the wisdom of the world. He doesn't do them like that. We talked about it in our Sunday school class this morning. There's a reason that the Israelites missed Jesus, at least in part because of how they saw David and how he vanquished the giant, how he slay, uh, slew, I don't know, what he killed that guy named Goliath. Right? And when they know that the Messiah is going to come, they expect the same thing. And Jesus doesn't do that, does he? He goes to the cross and dies. He's humiliated and beaten. He doesn't defend himself. He goes to the grave. God didn't do it like they expected it to. And many times God doesn't do it like we expect it to either. Expect him to. My point is, Joe, you shared about not separating, and I, 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 I thank you for that word, not separating the, the, the Trinity. My point is, as believers, as sons and daughters of God, as Scripture says, we are to be led by the Spirit of God, which means we are to be under His control, which is Him that helps us see what this has to say, helps us discern situations, say, how do I apply what this has to say to this situation? How do I move through this? What do I do here? And it doesn't 
isn't always the thing that makes the most sense to us. I'm afraid that as, as true as it is that we have sometimes uh, violated that, this verse by making, allowing us to do things that are, not, are, are sinful by saying they're spiritual, we've also gone the other direction and said, well, I can figure things out and I'm too reliant on my own brain and figuring out how to do things and I'll, I can handle it, so I'm going to do it by what makes the most sense to me. It's time to get, get, get past that because I want to see what Paul has to say back to Festus. Now, remember, he just said these things. He just said that when we impart the gospel, we do it in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. He has that exactly in mind when he responds to him, because he says, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. Now, he directly speaks against the, the, the word that Festus used for being out of your mind. The, set, the last part, the rational words, that word is the word that means of a sound mind. So he's saying, I'm speaking words that are true, and I'm speaking words that are from a sound mind. I'm not, I'm not crazy. But we can learn a few things as Peter responds to Festus. First of all, think about the situation. Festus just interrupted Peter in the middle of his talk, right? Like Peter's just, he's going, he's probably getting pretty, pretty, he's getting right to the, you know, right down to the, the, the meat of what he wants to say. And suddenly Festus just stops him and says, you're out of your mind, Paul. But Paul responds in a way that is instructive to us. He does not, he, he's polite still, right? He still says, most excellent Festus. He's polite about it. He's taking to heart the words that Peter would say later in 1 Peter 3, 9. He says this thing. He says, don't repay evil for evil. Don't revile. Don't repay reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Which, of course, that's based on what Peter says is the example that Jesus Christ himself left for us, right? When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was threatened, he didn't, he didn't threaten back. He didn't try to get back. But instead, what did Jesus do? He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. It's exactly what Paul is doing. It's not that Festus was, was right in interrupting him. He was wrong. But Paul said, it's not my job to make that, point that out and get you back for that. My job is to bless you and entrust myself to God who judges justly. God will take care of that. For the Lord says, vengeance is mine. The second thing I want to point out is there's a specific word that Paul uses. He says, I am speaking true and rational words. Now, you don't need to know this speaking word because it's a long Greek word that I can't even pronounce right. It's apophleotheglamaia. I can't pronounce it right. But it's the word for speaking, and it means to explain very clearly, like, like very precisely, like make it known precisely. It's actually only used three times in the whole New Testament. Right here was one of them, just now. Paul used it one time in his defense. The other two times both come in the book of Acts. They both come in chapter two of the book of Acts because the implication of this word, as it means to explain something so precisely that it's unmistakable, the implication for them is that it's Holy, Holy Spirit-inspired speech. It's Holy Spirit-enabled speech. I'll give you the example. For the other reference, the first time it shows up in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, when the Holy Spirit falls on them, and it says that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That word carries with it not just that they began to say things. It didn't just mean that they just began to use words. There is a word that means that. That's not what the word that Paul used or the word that's used here. It means that as they shared, as they spoke, it was immediately clear. It was very precise. It was, it was explicitly clear what they were saying. There's a reason it says that, right? Because remember, remember the situation. There's people from all languages around them, and they began to speak in other languages, and it was completely clear. It wasn't muddled. It wasn't like, it's like they instantly knew Spanish or instantly knew Chinese or instantly knew whatever other language that was there that they hadn't known before. That was the miracle that, was, that would happen right there, by the way. 
and everyone understood them. It happens just a couple verses later, by the way, because Peter uses the exact same word. When they gather around, he says, they don't think we're drunk. He says, we are speaking words of God. And he uses the exact same word. Paul uses that because he's trying to tell them, listen, I'm not out of my mind, Festus. I'm speaking inspired by the Holy Spirit. I'm making it very clear to you exactly what's happening. And to prove that or to show that, he turns to the other guy who's really there, the guy that he's really talking to the whole time. That man's name is Agrippa. He's a king of a little area. They have lost their power. The Herodians have to a large degree, but this is the last one in that line. And he's Jewish, so he knows all about this. And he says, this stuff doesn't happen under the radar. Right, Agrippa? You know all about it. You know all about it. You know the truth of what I'm saying, right? And then he decides to push the envelope a bit, right? He says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? And you have to almost hear him pause for a moment as he lets that question sink in. And then he looks him right in the eye and says, I know you do. You see, Paul knows if he can get Agrippa to consent to the fact that he believes the prophets, Paul knows he's just laid out a convincing proof that he's teaching only things that the prophets said. He's just extending what the prophet said and saying this man, Jesus, is the one that God was sending. Which means if Agrippa will admit to him that he believes the prophets, he's left with only one correct answer from here on out. And I believe that Agrippa knows that as well, which is why he answers the way he does. You see, here's the second opportunity where someone knows what the correct answer is supposed to be, but they don't want to receive it yet. And Agrippa does this little high-handed push off, shrug off, kind of like what Felix did. And he says, ah, come back some other time and talk to me more about it. He says, in such a short time, are you going to persuade me to be a Christian? You really think it's going to be that easy? That's really the gist of what he's saying. You think it's going to be that easy, Paul? Like you're just going to come in and say it one time and I'm, okay, I'm in. He doesn't want to receive it. I believe in his response is evidence that he understands exactly. He knows. And he knows what the only right answer is going to be. But he's not willing to yield He's left, as one commentary put it, he's left almost persuaded. Many, many times we see people, or perhaps we ourselves are in places where we are almost persuaded. But I want to encourage you that almost persuaded is not saved at all. On the fence is not in. I'm almost there is not there yet. I'm afraid too many of us have allowed ourselves to be in places where we are almost persuaded of the things of God and not really willing to be all in yet, thinking at some moment I'll slide in when I can. But we don't know when that moment is going to be, right? If I could use this, and I don't use this lightly, we don't know when the acetylene tank in front of us is going to blow up. We don't know when the vehicle coming towards us is going to come out of on our side or stop in front of us. We don't know those things, do we? And I don't say that to scare you. I, tell, I say that to say almost persuaded is not persuaded yet. Paul shows his heart for the gospel, his love, his genuine love for people, and he says, listen, I don't care whether it takes a long time or it takes a little bit. I would want that you, King Agrippa, and everyone else within earshot would be as I am, meaning a believer. I mean, except, of course, the chains that I have on me. 
I don't wish that on anyone. Second, second to the continuing evidence we see of God's incredible sovereignty in this story, I would again and again and again lift to us the example of Paul and how instructive it is to us and how we interact with people. Do you not see, like I see, Paul getting the wrong end of the stick over and over and over again? And Paul sharing from his heart and pleading and having, and you see some great successes. You also see some people saying, not now. You're crazy. What? You think it's only going to take this little bit? You think that's enough? Over and over again. And Paul continues to take no offense. He continues to bless. He continues to share. He continues to say, I want you to know Jesus no matter what it takes for me. In fact, he actually says those words later on in his letter to the Corinthians. I'll do anything if it means you believe in Jesus. Well, all of that, all of this instruction, all this story going on, in the end, it ends so quickly. The king stands up. This hearing's done. Festus stands up. Bernice stands up. They all withdraw. They all talk to each other. They all agree with each other that this man's innocent. Third time now in the book of Acts that it's said explicitly that Paul is innocent. And yet, what's the outcome? Agrippa looks at Festus and he says, this man could have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. Once again, we see that there is a much larger hand operating this story than the players involved. Once again, we see the injustice of what Paul is suffering. And once again, I remind you that there is a much greater injustice that's happening, and that is there were those that heard the gospel that said, I will harden my heart. I will stiffen my neck. I will say no. I will say not yet. I will say almost. And once again, I leave you with that same exhortation. Don't let yourself be in that place this morning. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the goodness that you bring to us. We want to worship you, and we know that involves not just singing songs, not just proclaiming things sometimes, but it means yielding our hearts to you. Father, we don't want to be left in a place where we are almost in. Whether we are reserving a bit more time for ourselves, whether we are saying, that just seems too much. That seems crazy. That doesn't make sense. I thank you, God, that by your Holy Spirit, you illuminate your word to us so that it can make sense to us. It can be true and rational. But we confess that in our humanity, it's not always like that. So we ask God, we ask for the filling of your Holy Spirit that we can be led by your Spirit, that we can understand and know and discern the things of God. You did not say it's impossible for men to do that. You said it's impossible for us to do it when we're in our natural, as our natural man. But we can be filled with the Spirit and controlled by Him so that we can discern and understand who you are and what you want from us, God. Thank you that as Paul gave his defense, he reminds us at a greater level that the best defense is saying the truth. He is sharing the truth. He can so ardently and without getting offended at how they respond, share and defend himself and share the gospel because he's sharing the truth. He's speaking the truth. We have the same opportunity 
Lord God, you have given us the same truth that we can share just as passionately, just as ardently defend and not take offense when people say no or call us crazy or don't want it. God, help us, I pray, in this, by your grace, in Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand this morning? We do have a meal, as I said, going to be dismissed. I'm going to pray for the meal as well as just uh, just as a, a, a blessing for you to be dismissed. God, thank you so much. We want to gather together over food. We're so delighted we get this opportunity. We want to have good fellowship, which means it wants to be uh, led by your spirit, wants to bring glory to you, have our eyes, our minds, our hearts, our attitudes, our actions, all to be under your lordship, bring glory to you. Bless the food. Bless the hands that prepared it. Bless our time together. And as we leave this place, we want to carry the banner of Jesus Christ high to be unashamed for the gospel for what you've done through Jesus. And we pray to his glory. Amen. Go in peace.